the feasts, the harvests, and the covenants through Jewish lenses are all saying the same thing. They're all about a plan of ages where God is reconciling all people to back to God. Mm. They all are say, repeating the same thing, and it's so beautiful. The you know the covenants, like the Abrahamic covenant versus the Mosaic covenant. Mm. Um, the Abrahamic covenant was a unilateral covenant where God promised to um, bless all the families of the, the earth through Abraham's seed. And Abraham didn't have to sign this covenant. It wasn't contingent upon anything he did. Hmm. And the Mosaic covenant, on the other hand, was a covenant that was rewards for obedience. And so people always get this confused in the Bible. They can't, they have got these paradoxes in what the Bible is trying to say, but your salvation is, is unconditional, a unilateral thing by God. But then there are rewards for obedience through the Mosaic Covenant. friends and welcome back to the what if project podcast my name is glenn and this is episode number 122 and it's part number eight and the final installment of our series uh, for the fall uh, which has been called to hell with hell Uh, and we've been talking about hell this will be the eighth week and uh, i hope it's been i hope it's been a blessing to you uh, I know many of our listeners, uh, much like myself, grew up in a very conservative world uh, where hell was seen as this literal place of fire and torture and separation from God and all sorts of terrible things. And I know for me, um, it was very traumatizing. And many of you have said the same. And so I hope that this series has given you maybe different perspectives of how to think about hell and has perhaps maybe helped you cut off a chain or two uh, that you've been carrying around uh, because of that doctrine being drilled into your head uh, when you were a kid. Uh, The goal of the series was just to give you some language, uh, to be able to see like, hey, there's other ways to think about this, and give you some language to maybe develop your own thoughts uh, along the way. We've seen people who take a very, uh, take a stance on hell like it doesn't even exist at all, Uh, Other people have said that, yeah, maybe it does exist, but maybe it looks a whole lot different than what we've been uh, raised or taught to think about it. So, uh, yeah. So today's episode, uh, to close it out, is from my friend Julia Forwerda. She wrote uh, an amazing book uh, called Raising Hell. And I really think you need to go to Amazon like right now and pick up this book. And I don't have it in front of me, but actually, you know what? While I have you here, and while I'm on the computer, who does this when they have a podcast? I do. Uh, I'm going to Amazon.com as we speak. Do-do-do-do-do. Do-do-do. And I'm typing in Julie's name. Julie Forwarda. So, Raising Hell, Christianity's Most Controversial Doctrine Put Under Fire. And right now, the Kindle version is free. So why are you not going to Amazon now to buy at least that? Because uh, it's free. Uh, you can also go and you can get the uh, soft cover book 
$11.31. This book tackles so many things. Uh, she really breaks down different um, arguments that are used like in favor of hell. Uh, she used to be super conservative. She believed all the things about hell. And she did her own research, went on this journey, and has come out the other side uh, to raise some hell about hell. And uh, I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. I really think you will enjoy the book. Uh, so do yourself a favor, head over to Amazon and uh, and pick it up. The series uh, is being sponsored by our friend at BeDisciple.com. Uh, here at the What If Project, we don't shy away from the tough questions. Obviously, we're doing a, a series on hell right now. Uh, one of the most, I don't know, one of the topics that sparks some some debate, kicks a couple hornets' nests. Uh, but we talk about things like LGBTQ inclusion, uh, salvation, the cross, atonement, racial reconciliation, all sorts of things. Uh, and I think it's important to tackle that stuff because I think that questions, doubts, uh, it's all a sign of, of growth. Like it's easy to plant ourselves in the ground and white knuckle our beliefs and say, I'm faithful. You know, I will never stray from my beliefs. And I used to think that was faith, but I don't know. Nowadays, I don't think that's really a symbol of mature faith. I think maturity comes when we embrace our questions. We dive into our doubts and we recognize that, hey, maybe there's more to know. Like maybe God can exist outside of my systematic theology textbook. And uh, that's why I love BeDisciple.com. They're a uh, social hub of sorts for all of your spiritual quandaries, and they're just a, a click away. So head over there, uh, scroll through their classes. They're affordable, ecumenical, accredited. Uh, they're all short-term, 100% online courses, and they're all taught by uh, experts in their field. Like They don't just pick random people off the internet who may or may not have a, a deep understanding of a particular topic, but these teachers who are teaching these courses, uh, they're all experts in their field, and they're taught by professionals, and they all take place online uh, in the company of others, so you can discuss your your hard questions. So uh, if you have any questions about that, if that piques your interest at all, uh, enroll in one of their classes, head over there, shoot them an email, ask them a question, uh, beadisciple.com. Uh, next, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject. It's a place where you can go to support the show financially. So if this has encouraged you, uh, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, uh, head over there, check it out. There's different tiers of giving, $3 a month, up to $20 a month. You can also create your own tier if you'd like to do that. Uh, every tier gets its own reward. Uh, Patreon.com slash What If Project. Uh, the What If Project community is also a place that you need to know about. Uh, it's a closed Facebook group. And how do I say this? Social media these days is a toxic waste field, right? It's like a, a dumpster fire. Uh, but the What If Project community is a closed group. There's about 200 people in there. And it is one of the places I look forward to going to every day uh, because I'm always going to interact with somebody there who, who gets it. It's a safe place for people to ask questions, share doubts. There's no shaming. There's no evangelizing. There's no Bible thumping. Uh, everybody's questions are welcome, and you can just be who you are, and I love it. So head over there. I'm going to put the link to that in the show notes as well. It's called the What If Project Community. 
Uh, it is our closed Facebook group. Uh, so what's next, right? We're, we're ending this series. Uh, so what are we doing next? Well, in November, I have a, a series of just uh, just conversations I've had uh, over the last few months. Uh, John Steingard is going to be coming on next week. He is the he used to be the lead singer of one of my favorite Christian bands growing up, uh, Hawk Nelson, and he uh, sent out a tweet or something on Instagram a while back saying he doesn't believe in God anymore, and the evangelical machine went. It was like somebody threw a wrench in the machine and it just like exploded. Like people were just freaking out. And uh, his his ideas are just shifting and he's thinking and he's deconstructing and it's it's beautiful. So he's going to come on and talk to us about that. Oh, we have Chuck DeGroat coming on to talk to us about narcissism in the church. Uh, so really good conversations. In December, we're going to close out the year uh, with a series for Christmas. And the series is called Good News for All people. And uh, it's going to rock your world. Uh, really good stuff. Uh, actually recording the final episode uh, for that series this week uh, with David Hayward, the Naked Pastor. Uh, he's going to be coming on along with some other people uh, as well. So really good stuff. And then we roll into the new year and uh, new things will be happening when we get there. So anyway, all of that to say, my friends, oh, special music. Yes. Uh, Derek Webb is going to be serenading us today uh, in our episode. Uh, Derek Webb used to be a lead singer, or one of the singers. I don't know if he's the lead singer, but one of the singers uh, in one of a very, another very big Christian band that I used to listen to uh, growing up. And now he is doing his own deconstruction, reconstruction, all the things. And uh, he's doing his own music. And uh, he was kind enough to send me a bunch of the files from his music uh, so I could share it with you in our podcast. Uh, so head over to Apple Music, Spotify, search Derek Webb, download his music, and uh, pass it around to all of your friends. Uh, so now, all of that to say, uh, once again, this is episode number 122. It's part number eight, the final installment of our series, and it's my conversation with Julie Forwarda. Enjoy. Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're sitting down with a brand new guest, someone who is quickly becoming uh, one of my favorite voices that I follow on the internet. Her name is Julie Ferwerda. Uh, she wrote a book called Ra uh, Raising Hell, subtitled Christianity's Most Controversial Doctrine Put Under Fire. So Julie, welcome to the podcast. I've really been looking forward to our conversation. Thank you, Glenn. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. So I came across your work because my mom actually sent me your book. Uh, she's mm. been a big supporter of my my podcast and my spiritual journey over the years. And 
one of the ways that she kind of uh, shows her support is once in a while she'll go to Amazon and send me a pile of books that I have in my in my car on my list. <laughs> and about six months ago, your book uh, showed up in the the box, and I didn't even know it existed. But she was clicking on other books, and I guess it led her to your book. And uh, I just finished it last week, and uh, it is a a game changer. So I just wanted to start off and say thank you for pouring so much of yourself into your your book and giving us this wonderful tool. Oh, what a great story. I love hearing that. So um, how was your, your mom just randomly found it on Amazon? Yeah, I put in a, a book because um, we're doing this series on hell. So I had a, a couple of books in there and I guess hmm. she was clicking on one book and then it said other people have bought this book and she clicked on that book and eventually it led her to your book. And uh, she said, I didn't see this on your list, but I read about it and everybody says good things about it. So I threw it in the box. So <laughs> what a great story. Now, um, it, did you get in touch with me on Facebook after that? I did. I looked you up okay. on Facebook and then I sent you the the message and wow. here we are. <laughs> right. Uh, I love hearing people's stories about how this happens. <laughs> yeah. So before we get too far uh, into conversation, maybe give us a small snapshot of yourself for people who aren't too familiar with you. Who are you and, and what do you do? Well, that's a, a loaded question. Loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I grew up in Wyoming and I am a mother of two adult, wonderful children. I'm married to my second husband. Um, just a little bit, I guess, about me other than the parts we're going to get into today. Mm. I moved um, to Idaho about maybe 12 years ago, just getting away from a lot of my past trauma with my divorce and my mom had died of cancer and my husband and I just wanted a new start. So we moved to Idaho and I felt like the, um, like God just put me down a path of a career change into nursing. And up until that point I had been a full-time writer mm. and, uh, I went down this path of getting my nursing degree and I, um, worked in a hospital, uh, I became an ER nurse for a couple of years. And then last year, the, uh, the plan just changed abruptly. And my husband and I had been feeling kind of like we were going to go down a different path and kind of get out of the system of, you know, a lot of things we didn't believe in, like the Western healthcare model. And I have a huge passion for holistic nursing, hmm. helping people find real answers to their their disease or unhealth body, mind, and spirit. And I knew that my nursing career was just kind of a foundation of giving me the knowledge and tools and experience I needed to know what people are up against and be able to have the research skills to look for real answers. And so anyway, last year we were visiting Puerto Rico and we were kind of just, um, open to the idea of doing something different. And we ended up finding a property in the mountains of Puerto Rico that called to us. And we felt like, you know, God was moving us out of the old um, system and paradigm and into something new. And I guess the best thing I can say now is we're sort of in that liminal space of not who we were, but not who we're becoming. And we're trying <laughs> to figure out the answers, but uh, what the vision I feel like I've been given is to start a holistic retreat here in the mountains oh, wow. and, you know, continue, pick back up my writing through my nursing career. I really didn't have any bandwidth to be doing any writing or creative 
endeavors. So I've, I've been picking that up again. I've been getting back into the raising hell, you know, uh, getting the word out there about that because throughout my whole nursing career, it kind of just had to, to make its own way out in the world, which it did. And it was beautiful to watch. I didn't, I didn't have any time to market it, mm. but it's kind of just made its way. And I'm, you know, doing all that I can now to promote this and also just work on my other creative goals and dreams. And, and like I said, it's sort of an, a discovery process right now. Wow. Sounds like you, you and your husband have an adventurous spirit. I don't know if I could uh, <laughs> have the, the courage to pick everything up and move to like Puerto Rico into the mountains and start something fresh. So that's, that's amazing. Yeah, we're both pretty adventure, adventurous, but also our kids are grown and mm-hmm. we just both have a real desire to live life fully and not have any regrets and see how far we can push the limits with making a positive impact on the world. So I guess we're, you know, starting the next chapter of that. That's awesome. I love it. So let's jump into your book a little bit. Um, okay. To be honest with you, I've got like, I have like 50,000 questions that I would love to ask you. <laughs> Doesn't and I have, everybody. It's a yeah, Pandora's box. <laughs> yeah. I have highlights like on every page, they're dog-eared, but I'm going to try my best to keep, to keep focused. That's why I sent you my questions in advance. But I thought a good place to start would be to just really simply ask you to talk to us about how you got from where you were in regards to your thoughts on health to where you are. Because like myself and a lot of our listeners, it seems like you uh, used to have what I guess we would call a traditional understanding of hell, but mm-hmm. now you're at this point where you're, you think drastically different about it. So maybe a, a deeper peek into your your story, like how have your thoughts on hell changed and then what led you or brought you to those places of change? Uh, that's a great question. And I will just say that there are millions of Christians out there right now who are deconstructing because mm-hmm. they're they're waking up to the ways that information has been distorted and misrepresented. And I, I'm actually working on a book right now as kind of a survival guide for deconstruction. And I'm excited about that. But um, I just, I guess I'll start off with the fact that I grew up in the Nazarene church, which um, the one that I grew up, the flavor I grew up in, I don't know if there's different flavors of Nazarene, (laughs) but it was very hell teaching and Mm. very fear, um, you know, fear-based. And we can get into that a little bit later, but I had a very solid conservative evangelical Christian upbringing. And I thought like probably most Christian, you know, especially conservative Christians that there was like this 2000 year consensus on what the Bible means and how to interpret it and the Mm -hmm. basic tenets of the fundamentalist conservative Christianity. And it never even dawned on me to ask why more liberal Christians came to their beliefs and practices. Mm. Um, You know, I'd been indoctrinated to believe that it was all heresy and moral compromise in in the liberal churches, but I never stopped to say (laughs) why, you know, Mm. like what happened here? Um, I never really questioned hell growing up. I, I was completely devout in my Christian beliefs. Uh, There was through the decades, I guess there were always problems and missing pieces that I had been brainwashed to overlook or to Mm. not question. Mm -hmm. And, um, I had been silenced if I questioned too much, I'd had that experience. I was in ministry leadership for two decades of my adult life. Uh, I was a teacher, a mentor to women and teens and, you know, some other things, but, 
Um, I also have to say that patriarchy through the years was troublesome for me at times because I felt disrespected by the system or stripped of my power, but mm -hmm. I thought it was my obligation to be the good submissive wife and church lady and not to question. <laughs> and, you know, like I said, we all arrived here by this mutual consensus supposedly, and this is just how it is. And if yeah. you want to please God and, you know, have all of the benefits of Christian living, you have to follow the rules. And mm. so patriarchy is a whole nother topic that we could delve into, but I found it to be very destructive to my first marriage where he was not a spiritual leader and I was not a follower. And mm. we were both trying to walk around in shoes that didn't fit. And it caused a lot of wounds between us. Mm. Um, and patriarchy also had a lot of devastating consequences on my psyche when, you know, because I, and I'll tell you more about that, but uh, why I questioned hell, I just will start with the fact that I had a daughter who repeatedly questioned hell as a child, and she mm -hmm. just could not wrap her tender little heart around the inconsistencies of this loving God that I was trying to teach her about, and that this God could also possibly send most of the people who've ever lived into this horrible, terrifying place. And mm -hmm. she was frequently questioning me with just agonizing, you know, um, emotions and puppy dog <laughs> eyes. And I would give her the usual pat answers right. that they teach us in church. Like, well, yeah. you know, we can't question God. God is sovereign. <laughs> God is sovereign. God is love and justice, but justice has to have a price for sin. And mm -hmm. um, somehow we'll all be okay with this, you know, when we're all celebrating in heaven, even though our loved ones are down in hell burning to a crisp. You know, I just gave her all these... <laughs> had answers that looking back, I'm so embarrassed by. And, and it's the questions of the child that, you know, bring about the most insight. So yeah. I, um, I ended up going through a divorce with my first husband, but my second husband, I've been married to him since 1999. And he actually was a missionary kid from Beirut, Lebanon. And I felt like he and I were, you know, sinking a lot spiritually, but he was the next one to question hell. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he, throughout our marriage, he, he had, well, in the early days of our marriage, he was really disillusioned with the church and with our version of faith. And he felt like there were just all these things that didn't add up. Like I didn't even ask to be here. And now I have to make this choice that determines my eternal destiny. And what about all the people who you know, don't encounter this God or didn't grow up in evangelical America, you know, and have all these obstacles. So he started questioning. Um, I will say that deconstruction for most of us is a gradual process of opening within us. And yeah. we're not usually just, you know, taken out of the dark and thrown into the bright sunlight. It's like a, a bit of a dawning process. And I remember a few years before exploring the topic of hell, reading Donald Miller's book, Blue Like Jazz. Yep. And that got me asking a lot more questions of my faith that I, than I'd ever had the freedom to do before. Mm. And um, after that, I, I had a good friend that I started studying Messianic Jewish perspectives with. And this was something I was really excited about because I felt like I'd hit a ceiling in my understanding of the Bible and my faith. And it felt like for, you know, 40 years of my life, it was just all this regurgitated material and every pastor and teacher that I ever heard was trying to take the same old meaning and make it somehow newly relevant. And I was bored 
to tears <laughs> with the Western model and the interpretations. And, you know, I know it sounds really egoic, but honestly, I feel like I felt like I'd outgrown my teachers. And so when yeah. my friend asked me if I wanted to study Jewish perspectives and she told me how much she was getting out of studying with a, a Messianic Jewish friend, I was like all over it. And as I started getting into the Messianic Jewish perspectives on the Bible, I realized it was like a whole world opened up for me. It was like mm -hmm. drinking out of a fire hydrant. And mm -hmm. I realized how many errors we have in Western lenses on scriptures mm -hmm. and how much we've missed the symbolism. And we have like no idea what the Bible's even really about mm -hmm. through our Western lenses. And so she and I just kept going down a path of, you know, studying these things out and feeling so stretched for the first time. It was like, you know, being out in fresh air and, then we started studying the Hebrew and Greek Bibles together, and we started finding uh, errors in translation. And mm. that was, you know, part of the dawning process. We were like, well, isn't the Bible supposed to be 100% accurate and inspired by God and without <laughs> error? And here right. I'm finding translation errors that a, a third grader could spot. Right. So I didn't need a seminary degree to see these translation errors like anybody could see them and mm. so the next step i guess for me was that i got introduced i think it was through my husband through a website that was a universalist website and the word universalist here shouldn't scare anybody universalist is basically the idea that all people have equal footing before god and that god's plan from the beginning of time has been to provide a remedy for the illness and to bring us all back into the family, just like, you know, the shepherd that went out and found the one lost sheep, all mm. people for all time are beloved family members of God. And we're in a process in our own, you know, journey of awakening to this. And mm. so it's the idea that all people are saved or reconciled to God. And we started finding verses in the Bible that clearly spoke of this. And it was kind of like a Paul on the Damascus road experience for me. I feel like the blinders had suddenly been removed for mm -hmm. the first time. And I was like, I've read this, these verses a thousand times. And why did I never read them this way? But right. also what else could they mean? I mean, they were being pitted against, they were pitting, you know, the work of Jesus against the work of Adam and saying that everything that was lost in Adam was recovered in, in Jesus or in mm -hmm. the Christ. And that was a huge eye-opening experience. And so I guess you could say then the dam broke and I, my husband and I, and also my friend, we all just started studying the origins and the evidence for hell. And my husband and I are both very um, educated, independent thinkers. And we decided that we would each take a different path of looking into this and just come back together and compare notes and see what we're finding. And if mm -hmm. it's true that hell doesn't exist, we both should come to that. And I didn't want to be scared of putting my faith to the test, but it, honestly, it was very scary. And part of the fear of that for me is that I had a sister who'd gone off the deep end into a religious cult. And I didn't want to think that I was above being deceived, but at the same time, I, at the time I was reading through the one year Bible, I did that. I mean, had that as a practice every year and I would, I would take women through it. But the very day that I started questioning all of this, I had been reading in Exodus 33 where Moses 
is having a conversation with God and he's like, how do I know? Basically, I'm just going to sum up what I read in this passage because it was so profound to mm. this ability for me to question. And that is um, Moses is talking to God and he's basically like, well, how do I know you're sending me down this path? Like, how do I know this is a safe path? And God promises that he will hold him by the hand and accompany him down this mm. path. And I felt like I was being given permission that that it was a safe path to start asking questions. And mm. So my husband and I both went down two different directions. He read Thomas Talbot, The Inescapable Love of God, and some other things. And I read Eric Stetson's Christian Universalism. And I started just absorbing all kinds of websites out there that I found like Tentmaker and some others. And it honestly, it didn't take more than two to three weeks before I knew that hell wasn't true. Like mm. it just fell apart like a house of cards as soon as... I, you know, started looking into it, but I will say that I, um, researched very in depth for the next year because at that time there weren't a lot of resources on what is true. And I wanted to try to somehow synthesize all the stuff I was learning about the Jewish lenses on scripture with what I was learning about hell and, you know, what the kind of, what I saw as the truer themes developing in scriptures. And, I studied it out for a year trying to piece everything together. And my book, Raising Hell, is kind of a record of that journey of how I read far and wide and just sort of synthesized it all into one big picture. So mm. I like it. There's, I see a lot of parallels in your story, just to my own story. And one of the things that jumped out at me is you said that your, um, your daughter started asking a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, uh, my daughter's three, but when she was born, that's what really triggered a lot of questions. Cause I had been, like you said, it's a, you know, deconstruction is a gradual yeah. process. So I had been quietly, I always say deconstructing things in my mind because I was afraid <laughs> to talk about it, you know? So I was reading like Rob Bell's love wins and I read it probably five or six times. And then he had a companion guide that came out for it. And I read the companion guide and all the resources that he put in the companion guide. And it kind of like it did hell just didn't sit right with me anymore but i didn't know what to do with it because like you right. said like i was taught never to question it you know but then my daughter was born and she was in the nicu for a little while and i remember very vividly like standing in the nicu looking at this baby in this tank thinking to myself mm -hmm. none of this makes any sense to me like oh, so all true. my systematic theology books like about you know god's wrath and god's judgment and um, you know, original sin, like all these different things. I'm like, how could anybody who claims to be love and divine mm. look at this little, tiny, innocent infant who's never done anything wrong, right? but say that she is full of sin and ultimately destined for hell unless she makes some kind of decision when uh. she's older. And they, none of it, <laughs> I remember having this like crisis of thought in the NICU and that's what realized like I have I have to look I have to take this more seriously and that just really propelled me on my journey. Well the other thing is when that happens and you have that crisis of belief you have to suddenly become god in the lives of your children because yeah. the universe isn't safe and you can't trust god with the lives of your children and you know I found myself to be an overbearing controlling religious nutcase for a mom <laughs> because right. I, I wanted to do everything to make sure my children made it to heaven, you know, sure. and it's a horrible, you know, abusive psychological technique or tactic that, that this 
doctrine has brought about in our lives where we can't trust God with our future and our children. Yeah, definitely. Now I'm interested, like you said that your daughter asked the questions first, then your husband kind of started, was the next one to go, to go down the road. Like <laughs> how did that make you feel as a, as a wife? Because I know like a lot of our listeners, uh, they're, they're married or they have a significant other and like they're on different paths. Like one person is doing a lot of the questioning. The other person is, trying to cling to their traditions? Like, how did it make you feel deep down inside? Well, people probably aren't going to like my answers to <laughs> what I'm about to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, at first, so I married this sweet missionary boy, and I thought that we were going to just live happily ever after going to church, right? Mm-hmm. I, I was so devout in my faith. Like, I, I just couldn't have been any more sold out to the idea of my, my Christian faith. I was the least likely one to come around to this truth. And if I had had too much ego or too much fear, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. He probably still would be where he's at today. And at first I thought it was, it was scary to me that he was questioning and, um, he actually questioned hell the year before we started looking into it. He said to me one day, honey, I was on this website and they were making this case that hell isn't true and you should look at it. And I just laughed him off. I was like, don't be silly. <laughs> what Get are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I told you about how he always had those deeper philosophical questions and yeah. he wrestled with, you know, the fairness of God. And so anyway, I laughed him off, but At that point, we did start reading some books together. We were both kind of disillusioned with church and the problems in the modern church model. You know, there's so many things wrong with it. And at the bottom of it, like I was really starting to question the church model and realizing I had these quote unquote unsaved friends who could never come into a church and feel comfortable. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, what is all this for? It felt like a big a big drama playing out or a big show that we were putting on and it wasn't relevant to the unsaved. And so anyway, we started reading books together. I think one of them was why I don't go to church anymore or something like that. Mm. And it actually took us down a path together. We're both kind of rebels at heart and we both stepped away from the church model even before we questioned hell. And I think that gave us the space that we needed to feel comfortable, you know, looking into things because otherwise we might've been seeking the counsel of our wise elders and Mm -hmm. being shot down. But, um, for us, we grew a lot closer through this journey and it, it, um, exponentially strengthened Mm -hmm. our relationship because we both were willing to question and find out fearlessly what evidences were there of hell. But if one of us had been too afraid to question or hadn't been able to see, I feel like we probably wouldn't still be married. And we've actually both said this to this day because this journey is so liberating and so um, life altering that once you go down this path, you, you don't fit in that old box anymore. And Mm. I don't, I can't imagine how we would have been able to keep our marriage together. So that's my answer. I mean, I do see people making it work, but we're both aware that it probably wouldn't have had a good outcome for us. And we're so both so grateful that we made this journey together. That's really good. Now you said that as you started to investigate, like the Jewish uh, perspective of the scriptures and you started to look a little bit deeper into this subject, I think you said that within like a couple of weeks, uh, like the whole idea of hell just kind of fell apart for you. 
And I'm wondering, do you have anything like off the top of your head, like anything specific that like jumped out at you that you were like, oh yeah, like I never thought of this before, but this is so obvious. Like, do you have any of those kinds of examples? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, from what I can remember, I went through, first of all, a big series by some Messianic Jewish, um, what do you call them? Not a priest, but a rabbi. rabbi. Yeah. 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 Um, he did a whole series on the feasts and, mm-hmm. um, that was so eye opening that I just listened to it over and over because I could not believe how the feasts of the Bible started tying together all these concepts between old and new Testament that mm-hmm. I never would have put together, like the barley, the wheat, the grapes, um, mm-hmm. the feast of tabernacles, you know, or in gathering. And, and I know this, I'm not going to do this justice because I can't really explain what all these mean. However, (laughs) um, the feasts, the harvests and the covenants through Jewish lenses are all saying the same thing. They're all about a plan of ages where God is reconciling all people to back to God. Mm. They all are repeating the same thing. And it's so beautiful. The, you know, the covenants like the Abrahamic covenant versus the Mosaic covenant, Mm -hmm. Um, The Abrahamic covenant was a unilateral covenant where God promised to um, bless all the families of the the earth through Abraham's seed. And Abraham didn't have to sign this covenant. It wasn't contingent upon anything he did. Mm. And the Mosaic covenant, on the other hand, was a covenant that was rewards for obedience. And so people always get this confused in the Bible. They can't they have got these paradoxes in what the Bible is trying to say, but your salvation is is unconditional, a unilateral thing by God. But then there are rewards for obedience through the Mosaic Covenant. And then, you know, the harvest, there was the barley, the wheat, and the grape harvest that they were celebrating at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering in the fall. And what mm. that meant is it was symbolizing people the barley are the first fruits. Jesus was considered a barley or a first fruit. These are the first people who are awakened to ahead of the rest to help bring in the rest of the harvest. And then there's the wheat crop that, you know, goes all through summer. And that's the next, you know, symbolic layer of people coming into from the harvest. And then there's the grapes. And in the Bible, you know, we look at the grapes, the way it's portrayed in the Bible, you've got these grapes and the blood they're getting squashed under feet and the blood is spattering everywhere and it's like this horrible like violent end <laughs> of people but actually that's not what the text is conveying the grapes are if you think of a grape harvest the grapes have a tough fleshy exterior but inside mm-hmm. is the sweetest and most celebrated part of the crop and mm-hmm. The grapes are the last ones to come in at the end of the harvest, but they are the most celebrated because, and to me, you know, I came to see over time, the grapes were actually the the hypocrites and the Pharisees, not the, not the drug users and the prostitutes, mm. you know, it's the ones who think they're good enough and they've got the tough fleshy, you know, outer skin that needs to be softened and mm. All these things, and, and also Jewish mysticism um, was another huge thing for me, and I, Jewish mysticism is just really beautiful. It, it basically has a lot of philosophies that help us make sense out of the character and nature of God and how this God relates with us. And mm. I have a couple of books along the way that were really important in this journey, if you want me to yeah, please throw out some names. Um, sure. The first one is The Secret Life of God by Rabbi David Aaron. Mm. 
And then the second one was Everything is God, The Radical Path of Non-Dual Judaism by Jay Michelson. And mm. those were very important in me putting together all these pieces too. Mm. So those are good resources. I'll put those in the in the show notes. But I think everybody has like one of those one of those books that kind of triggers things for them. Like for me, it was it was Love Wins, you know, by Rob Bell. And I know a lot of people now too are reading uh, Richard Rohr's new book, uh, The Universal Universal Christ. Christ. Yep, that's mm-hmm. a big one for a lot of people. Yeah, but, Richard Rohr is my all time favorite writer. Just for the yeah. record, and if if you want universal <laughs> non dual views on scriptures and God, he's the go to guy. He brings it all guy. together. <laughs> yeah, and I think too, like you know, you one of the big things for me that uh, kind of big questions that popped into my head when I was thinking about all this stuff was and you alluded to it earlier, but like we always say that we're always taught that in Adam everybody died, which is why you know my my daughter apparently in that NICU tank was. Mm. was sinful, you know, and mm-hmm. deserving of God's wrath in a sense. But yet in Christ, not all are automatically made alive. And that, that just confused me so much because like, why is it that all of humanity doesn't have a choice in order to be dead in Adam, but yet humanity has to make a choice to become alive in Christ? Like that for me makes it seem like the death, the, the death that's brought, by, brought about by Adam is more powerful than the life mm-hmm. brought about by Christ, right? Such a good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there's a lot of those kinds of questions. Sense. Yeah, exactly. Supposedly, exactly. we have this all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God who tells us to forgive our enemies as many times as necessary, and that you know, love never fails. But yet, He's gonna, you know, His love fails for most of the people who've ever right. lived. Yeah, so like God's asking me to do something He's not willing or is unable to do himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So what I want to do now is I want to, I want to transition a little bit if you don't mind. And I want to ask you or present you, I should say maybe a few common arguments that people mm-hmm. make who hold a more conservative or a traditional view, like a place of eternal torment or hell is a place of separation from God. And I want to ask you if you could respond to these arguments because in your book, you, you do so in ways that I think are very unique. And I think it's going to give our listeners some maybe helpful tools for their tool belt as they have these conversations with their family, their friends, church people, all that kind of stuff. So the first one is that I get a lot is that hell is like an orthodox view, meaning that, you know, hell is an old doctrine. It's been around forever. A lot of people say Jesus talked about hell more than anything else, you know, in the Bible, Old Testament talks about it's all over the place. And if you subscribe to any other view of hell, then it being at least the very least a place of separation from God and like you're a heretic. So I realize that that question could be like an entire series in itself, but maybe you could drop us a few nuggets of of wisdom to help our our listeners when they come up against this kind of an argument. Yeah, usually I'll give you a few nuggets, but the thing I always say to people is the reason I wrote a 300-page book is because I get questions like this where there's like this huge Pandora of cascading questions behind the question. Mm -hmm. and you can't do justice to, to some of these questions in, you know, a five minute explanation. So first thing I'll say is if you're having any curiosity, be sure you read the book to um, put all the pieces together through, you know, my process. But um, I will say that hell is only orthodox for a certain group of people in a certain area of time, but Mm. none of those times people or places involve Jesus or those living in the Bible times. And we're not, presented with this belief in church, obviously, because church has a territory to protect um, 
they are trying to make us think that, you know, it's always been this way. And, um, but hell was not the orthodox position of the early Western church, which is the church we're a product of for the first five centuries after Jesus. And everybody should take pause to think about that. Five centuries after Jesus, hell is not the orthodox position of the Western church. Yeah. The universal salvation, which I explained, you know, throughout this talk was the orthodox position until then by the majority of the five theological schools of that day. Hmm. So the Jews who wrote the Bible, and we should also consider, you know, the perspective of the people writing the Bible, they've never taught or believed in any kind of eternal hell the way Hmm. that we teach it today. It was introduced into the Roman church by the early leaders, namely Tertullian, Jerome, and Augustine. Um, And also, I I will just say the Bible doesn't actually even teach hell. Even the modern Bible, when you correct translation errors, there's several distinct Greek and Hebrew words that have been translated into hell. And I say distinct Greek and Hebrew words because they take, uh, you know, words with different meanings and Mm. even and render them as hell throughout the Bible. And there's the agenda is like, if you study no other word, go to your uh, concordance and study out all the words throughout your Bible that have been translated as hell. And you will be absolutely shocked. And also I will say, if you even compare the different versions of the Bible, Mm. you've got the King James uh, has like 30 some occurrences of the word hell. And the new King James has like 56 occurrences of the word hell and NIV and NASB have like 13 or 14 occurrences of the word of hell. And if you Mm. look at any of the literal translations, like the Young's literal translation, which, you know, has been a mainstream version or the concordant literal, there's zero references to hell. So if hell is really in the text, why wouldn't every single Bible have the same number of renderings of the word hell? Um, but anyway, the, the, the main words that are translated as hell throughout the Bible in the Old Testament Hebrew, we've got the word Sheol. And in the New Testament, we have Hades, Gehenna, and Tartaru. And first of all, in the Old Testament, the word Sheol is a place that everybody goes to, whether good or bad. But when the translators were trying to convey of the place that the bad people went, they would render Sheol as hell, mm. like in the, you know, King James. Sure. But when they were rendering it as the place that the good people went, like David or, you know, Samuel or Joseph, they would render it as Sheol or the grave. Mm. And then you, you get to the New Testament and the three main words rendered as hell are Hades, Gehenna, and Tartaru. And Hades is the greek counterpart to sheol so it's really just it's not even grave it's not like a literal physical grave sheol or hades it's actually more of the mystical idea of the place of the dead like where are the dead after they die you know it's that unknown place or covering where we don't know we don't know until we get there and then gehenna in the greek is actually a greek rendering of the valley of ben hinnom from the old Testament. It's actually a literal Valley outside of Jerusalem. And this is the one that Jesus referred to when it's translated as hell. He was actually talking about a literal Valley. And what's interesting is Gehenna had always been a place of national judgment for Israel and um, for just their wickedness. And an an irony here is that I believe Gehenna or the Valley of Ben Hinnom 
was the place where the Israelites were sacrificing their children to Moloch in the fires. And God said this was a detestable thing that never even entered his mind that they should do this. And here we're trying to, you know, flip the script here and say (laughs) that not only did God, you know, uh, create us detestable. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, we're going to throw everybody here. Right. Um, anyway, Gehenna, it's a literal valley outside of Jerusalem. They believe, obviously, we're just trying to make sense out of it looking backwards. And there is suggestion that Gehenna was a place where outside the city gates were the garbage and the dead bodies were thrown and burned. I mean, I've seen conflicting information about this, but mm. generally speaking, it was a place away from society where people were banished or a place of judgment. And it was national judgment typically more than individual judgment. Mm. Um, and the Jews were really big about, about where we go and we go all <laughs> to coin a modern <laughs> phrase um, right. in that most of the principles of the Bible were collect for the collective, not for the individuals. Mm. And then the last one is Tartaru. Tartaru means it's a verb and it means to cast down and yet they turned it into a noun hell. And that's, mm. I think it's in first Peter. Um, so those are the three words. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of words in the Bible that need to be reexamined. You know, the concept of eternity does not yeah. it's not in the scriptures. A lot of people are going to really balk at that, but it it's not in the scriptures in relation to the afterlife because mm. the Jews who wrote the Bible didn't think in abstract time. They only they only wrote about ages of you know like eras or ages. Yeah. And then the Old Testament word for age was olam. And from a Jewish point of view, it just meant beyond the horizon or something we can't see or we can't know about from this side. Hmm. And um, otherwise, there's like a couple of places in the New Testament that speak of us being immortal, but the concept of eternity just isn't there. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think I think that's an important point that you know we miss when we just read our Bible on a surface level I was talking to on the podcast, uh, maybe it was about a year ago. You ever heard of uh, Doug Padgett? Nope. Yeah. So Doug Padgett wrote a book on um, kind of the the gospel of John. And he talks in the book about how, you know, John uses the word believe like so many times, but he said there's in the Greek language, there's a noun for believe and there's a verb for believe. And the other gospels use the noun and the verb interchangeably. John only uses the verb. And so he said, if you go back and you read all the verses where John says, believe the biggest one being John three sixteen, I uh, know about believing in the one that on uh, God's only son, because it's not about a mental thing. It's not a noun. It's a verb. It's about what you're doing with your life. And if you really mm-hmm. believe in the way of Christ, it will affect the way that you live because for the early Christians, it wasn't about uh, you know, um, what you believed in your brain. It was about how you lived with your life. And I think yeah. that, we miss that when we just read it on a surface level because to us, the word believe means something I have to, you know, I'm in the West, I'm a, you know, the Western mindset is we have to, we have to intellectually believe something in order right. for it to be true, but that's hmm. not necessarily what's beneath the surface. So. Oh, that's really good. Um, what I wanted to do too, is I wanted to ask you um, about, about Hitler, because that's another question that a lot of people get, get thrown at is, you know, well, if there's no hell, well, no, like, what do we do with God's judgment? And, you know, is God just winking, you know, at sin and just giving a little slap on the hand and let everybody in? Like, what about people who have done monstrous things like 
like Hitler. So what do you, what do you say about God's judgment? If we kind of take hell off the table, what does that look like for you? I really love this conversation, especially when I can just sit down with someone and talk through justice. Um, mm-hmm. There's so many things here that people haven't paused to think about, but uh, the first thing is you have to ask what these words mean. Like what is justice? Um, what is sin? Mm-hmm. What is the goal of this existence? You know, what's the message of the gospel and, and the new Testament and um, interestingly, we find a new story emerging here, just looking at the definition of some of these things, like, you know, in our Western minds, we've, all these words have been defined for us, but they haven't been defined well. And Mm. they've actually created perceptions that just aren't even accurate about what this whole existence means. And like, I'll give you an example when you start really looking into the word sin, the word sin isn't about a list of moral failures that we commit. The word sin is basically the idea of the perception we have of separation from God and others Mm -hmm. and all of the behaviors that we, we do to reinforce that perception of separation. Yeah. And you know, what is justice? Justice is the theme of basically of the Bible and the word Throughout the Old and New Testament, the word that's rendered righteousness, I think in the olden days, righteousness probably conveyed more of a sense of justice, but it came to be associated more with like morality and and such. But actually the word righteousness throughout the Bible should be rendered justice. Mm. That's like the Greek word dikeo, mm. or I don't know how you say it, but it's it's the word for justice. It's like from a court of law, it's like being fair and equitable and treating your neighbor as you would treat yourself. And the goal of our existence here is really about transformation. And, you know, that's the, the message throughout the new Testament is love God, love people. And we do this through, you know, acting justly. And they tell, it tells us a new story about ourselves. You know, we're not throwaways. Um, and, if you look at someone like Hitler and you know, you think of all the atrocities that people like Hitler committed, um, where's the satisfaction in making Hitler a throwaway? Like if you're looking at the laws of justice and transformation, what you really want is someone like Hitler to have a change of heart and to find a way to right his wrongs, which I do believe it's possible. It's always possible to right your wrongs, especially if you realize that this isn't the end of the story. Yes, he killed people, but that doesn't mean that's the end of their story mm. or that they you know, can't find meaning in what they experienced and find forgiveness. Yeah. So this story is about atonement. And if you break that word down, you come to at one month. And again, it's getting rid of that perception of separation. Mm. Um, Hitler seems to be the poster child for the necessity of hell for everyone. And, true. <laughs> um, I just want to say, first of all, if there is a hell that God is much, much worse than Hitler and people should sit with that truth. Yeah. Like if you really believe in hell, Hitler's got nothing on God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, the main point is also for me that until you've had a true, encounter with, first of all, your connection to others and also, um, you know, your humanity and your need for grace in your transformation process. You're never Mm going to understand that you are Hitler, but it's really important to come to this full realization that if you had walked in Hitler's shoes, 
and you had all of the same factors at play that he did, whether the way he'd been raised to think about things, you know, the body chemicals he had, the mm. ways he was treated as a child, the ways his mind was formed by his predominant culture. If you had walked in his shoes or if you walked in any other person's shoes, the fact is you would reproduce the same results. And so you have to see the connection that you have to all people, Mother Teresa and Hitler, like you yeah. are both of those people mm. when you get to the heart of it. And until love has been perfected in your heart, you're not going to see this. But um, the goal of transformation really is coming face to face with our humanity and not judging anybody as deserving of hell or beyond being rehabilitated and reconciled and made into a new creation. Yeah, that's really good. And I think uh, one of the big points you brought up is that if there really is a hell, you know, God is a million times worse than Hitler. And that's one of the things that I always talk to people about because I've been hit with that question a bunch of times. And one of the things that I've kind of crafted in response is that, you know, if, if people who don't believe in Jesus go to hell, then really all the Jewish people that Hitler killed went to hell. And so mm-hmm. you have Hitler putting them in literal ovens and burning them alive. And then they go and they meet God who then throws them into an eternal oven where they're tortured for all of eternity. Like that just does not make any sense to me at all. Like if you look at, if Jesus is the picture of, of God and God is love, the two just don't fit at all. Yeah. It's, you just, you can't, when you start thinking really about hell, it just doesn't make any sense that God would just throw away most of what he's made because he, he didn't plan ahead far enough for a remedy, you know, Yeah. that he would just write a story where most of everything is lost. I mean, that kind of God is just so powerless and, and weak or mean and unloving. And really that's where we kind of get the two camps between the Calvinist and the Arminianist, you know, the Calvinists say God is too mean and um, unloving to save all. And the Arminianists say, you know, who believe that we have free will, God's too weak to save all. So, yeah. And I think, I think that maybe that's like the springboard is, you know, to start all this stuff is being willing to ask the questions, because like you said earlier, and I had the same experience, I was taught to never ask these questions. Like yeah. you just believe, just nod, say, yes, I, I don't understand it's it all, but, yeah, but God you're is getting, sovereign. Yeah. You're getting into dangerous territory. If yeah. you think too much. But as soon as you ask those kinds of questions, like about, you know, whether it's, you know, all died in Adam, but what we all aren't made alive in Christ or, you know, Hitler puts people in ovens and then God puts them in. Like it just doesn't, you ask those questions and all of a sudden things don't fit. And then it, it forces you to go down that road because you have to think about these questions if you're going to make sense of it. Well, and you know, if you look at the stages of grief, um, the stages of grief are shock and horror, then intense anger and then sadness or depression and then acceptance. And the deconstruction process is going to be look a lot the same as that. So when you first start asking questions, you need to allow yourself to get really angry and, Mm angry about the ways you've been controlled and suppressed in being able to question and think for yourself and all the ways that you've been deceived into thinking that God is some tyrant and monster, you know, that who would even, or that you're not, it's not safe to question, like what kind of a insecure egoic maniac would God have to be to 
put us into this murky story and then tell us we can't ask questions, just That's obey. Right. Like yeah. it's just inconceivable. But I would just say, you know, through that deconstruction process, it's really important to allow this gamut of, of shock and horror and anger and <laughs> sadness and until you get to the acceptance, but the acceptance will come. Yeah, that's very true. Well, Julia, we are just about out of time. I have a lot more questions for you, so we're going to have to do this again, but uh, mm-hmm. I am on a break from work and I work from home these days, so I've got to clock back in in a few minutes, but uh, this has been a lot of fun and thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, it's been really great. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And real quick, where can people find you online to interact with you and your work? Well, if they want to learn more about the book, they can go to raisinghellbook.com. And then I would love to see people um, join me on Facebook. I have a a group called Raising Hell Book Group, and you can just locate it on Facebook, send an ad request. It's a private group. Your friends and family aren't going to be able to discover that you're in there (laughs) talking about heretical things. Right. (laughs) And then um, I also have a YouTube channel where I kind of just have either these interviews or bite-sized pieces, you know, addressing the questions. And it's just youtube.com forward slash raising hell. Awesome. Well, I'll put those links in the show notes and uh, we'll do this again sometime soon. Okay. Thank you so much, Glenn. Thanks, Julie. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.